Well, thank you very much, uh, Meredith. Um, thank you uh, to the Wasong uh, family. Um, and thank everyone um, at Trinity College for making this possible. It's really a great honor um, to have a chance to uh, address you tonight on the topic of uh, a book that uh, has in some ways been my topic for most of my career. So let's see, I'm going to get this. That's it. Okay, good. Um, uh, so, uh, the rise and fall of classical Greece. Let's start with Byron. Um, uh, uh, rise and fall is sort of an old-fashioned topic, and Byron's a sort of an old-fashioned guy. Fair Greece, fa sad relic of departed worth, immortal, though no more, though fallen, great. So, what if Byron were right? Um, uh, what if uh, it's right to say that Greece was um, uh, once upon a time great, fallen, and immortal? That's actually what I'm going to argue. Um, uh, immortal, um, uh, what I mean by this, is the survival um, of an intellectual heritage. Um, uh, here we have uh, the uh, Loeb classical libraries. The green ones um, are uh, works uh, in uh, Greek. Um, the red ones, uh, uh, Latin. Uh, and here we have the great uh, German uh, encyclopedia. The point is, we know a huge amount um, uh, about this world. It is, in fact, in that sense, in this culture cultural sense, um, immortal. By great, um, what I mean um, is an era, uh, an extended era, um, of unusually high economic and cultural performance, an era of economic efflorescence um, in the terms uh, that were uh, made famous by uh, Jack uh, Goldstone. Um, and uh, by fallen, uh, I mean the pre-modern normal condition of near subsistence. Um, the point is, is that this is Athens um, at its uh, height, um, uh, a period arguably of remarkable um, economic uh, and cultural uh, accomplishment. This is pretty much what Athens uh, looked like uh, most of the, uh, for most of human history um, before and after. Um, obviously the Acropolis there, but um, not much uh, otherwise. Uh, so the question then is, why the rise? How does Athens get to be this? How does the Greek world get to be rather like that? Um, why the fall? How come uh, it didn't stay that way? Um, uh, and uh, then uh, ultimately, um, uh, why is it still remembered? Um, uh, why is it, uh, as it were, immortal? Um, so, a big agenda um, uh, in a short amount of time. Um, I'm going to be talking about um, political and economic development uh, in Greece over the very long run, over about 3,000 uh, years. I'm not going to be talking about all of those 3,000 years. And we're going to be looking at uh, Greece um, in two senses. One is the territory um, that was uh, basically controlled by the Greek state in about 1890, so we'll call it core Greece. Um, uh, and then uh, the other sense in which we'll be thinking about the Greek world uh, is this much more extensive world of uh, Greek city-states, the territory occupied by people who were culturally Greek um, uh, at the time of this uh, remarkable efflorescence, uh, uh, an area occupied by up to a thousand or something over a thousand um, Greek city-states. Right. So, um, uh, here we have a basic development index for core Greece, for that area um, uh, of, uh, uh, occupied by the uh, basically modern Greek state. And what we're looking at here um, is development between um, uh, about the end of the Bronze Age here to modernity. So I've just thrown in these little signs. Uh, that's where uh, roughly we would uh, have Homer, um, and that's roughly where we would have uh, Byron. Um, and so that's the development of the uh, Greek world. Um, if we multiply number of people um, uh, by their uh, total consumption, um, so basically this is millions of people um, times uh, a, a denominator of bare subsistence. So uh, bare subsistence at level one uh, is a human is just alive. You fall below one, 
the individual is dying. If you have multiples of one, then you have higher level of uh, total consumption. Um, so here's the basic story. This is rise and fall, right? Um, uh, so here we are with people, not very many people living very close to subsistence, coming up to a whole lot of people living well above subsistence, and then returning um, to that earlier point. So that's the story uh, that I want to explain. Um, uh, one way to think about this chart uh, is to imagine the pre-modern normal. You see that the Greek world, for the most part, um, stays pretty close to this low level of not very many people um, uh, and low level of consumption. And yet this era, this classical era, um, is remarkably higher. Um, uh, so both we want to explain how did it get that high and then um, uh, uh, what do we mean by uh, being that high. So here's another way to look at that same chart. This is just breaking out the two um, parts of it. Uh, population in millions is this gray line, and then consumption is this black line. So they more or less track each other, but not precisely. So uh, what kind of world are we really talking about when we extend out into the extended Greek world? Um, uh, we're talking about a decentralized ecology of a great many small states. Um, uh, Plato put it this way, the earth is very large and we Greeks live in a small part of it, about the sea, like ants or frogs around a pond. What could he mean by that? He means this. Um, uh, so here we have uh, uh, the Greek world, each one of these dots is a city-state, an independent um, uh, 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 state, um, and there are uh, a great many of them around. The pond is basically the Black Sea um, and the Mediterranean Sea. By the way, uh, those of you who are interested in mapping, if you like uh, playing with internet sites, um, this is a, a map, uh, uh, an internet site that allows you to make your own maps um, of the Greek world uh, designed by one of my Stanford uh, undergraduates, uh, Maya Krishnan. So she gets a credit. Um, uh, here's another guy who gets a credit. Um, uh, all of the work that I am uh, going to be showing you is in part um, based on the work of this man, uh, Mogens Hansen, um, who was the leader behind this gigantic inventory um, of archaic and classical Greek polis, uh, uh, city-states, which came out um, about 10 years ago. It's a huge, great encyclopedia um, that uh, was very difficult to use um, until we digitized it. Um, uh, so this is a very sort of Stanford kind of thing. Um, by digitized, I don't mean just scanning it in um, like a pirate uh, so that you have a digital copy, but rather um, uh, make it available for um, quantitative measurement. So once again, this is something um, that is only possible to do with a team. Uh, the large amount of data we have allows us now to re-envision the Greek world as what it really was, and that is a market-like ecology of city-states. Um, so uh, trying to think about it, trying to get your arms around what this world was like, um, uh, we need to sort of decide how many of these were really big by Greek standards and how many of them were little. So we can take uh, the uh, city-states of the Greek world and divide them into categories of from really little to really big, from really little um, to really big. Uh, and the dark bars here um, are the number of total or the percentage of all total city-states um, uh, that were little um, or big. And then the light bars is the number of total Greeks um, uh, who lived in either little or bigger kind of places. The basic story here um, is that most Greek city-states were really small, so the dark bars uh, on, the, on the left. Um, and yet, uh, so about four-fifths of all of these polis, these city-states, were small. Um, and yet, uh, most Greeks, about two-thirds of Greeks, lived in the bigger ones. Um, so once again, this was not possible even to imagine until we started digitizing um, all of this uh, evidence and um, allowed us to reimagine what the Greek world um, uh, really looked like. Here's another way to think about it, um, uh, just uh, putting it on a pie chart. Most of the city-states, small, right, but most of the um, uh, Greek uh, uh, people lived in middle um, or large-sized, uh, uh, sorry, middle or large-sized city-states. Uh, so, oops. 
Here's another way to imagine um, uh, the uh, size of the Greek world. Um, and this is, once again, Maya Krishnan's uh, uh, work. These are, these are the kind of maps you can make for yourself uh, if, you, if you go to this one. So here, um, the dark blue ones are the really big ones. The light blue ones are the medium-sized ones. And then the red and orange ones are the small ones. And we can actually think about the distribution of big and small states. Uh, we can begin to think about how this ecology uh, really worked, how it looked to the Greek world, uh, to the Greeks of the time, how uh, they experienced their world. Um, and just one other way to think about it, here we have the um, uh, uh, total number of uh, uh, city-states on, on the uh, right here, um, uh, the left, and then uh, uh, the size of city-states, um, and then once again the number of city-states, and how famous they were, how well-known they were. Um, uh, and we can see very quickly um, that most of the Greek world was made up of small and obscure city-states, right? Um, uh, but over here, um, you know, on the far right, we have uh, Athens, Sparta, Syracuse, really big ones. Um, uh, this, once again, is, is a size metric, and here we have the famousness metric. Um, uh, so uh, a very few city-states are the really famous ones, um, but if we're going to understand the way the Greek world worked, we have to understand the whole thing. We have to recognize that as uh, Herodotus um, uh, ultimately realized uh, Greek history is a history of small and great uh, city-states alike. So what we're going to try to do is measure economic change in this world of small and great city-states distributed um, across uh, uh, the Mediterranean and across the shores of the Black Sea. We'll be looking at relative uh, change over time, um, demographic growth, size of houses, supply of coined money, and investment in uh, civic infrastructure. And then we'll look at some comparative measures, um, so differences between societies. So we can look at population density, uh, at urbanization, at income, uh, and at coefficients of inequality. And both of these are going to allow us to think about how the Greek world changed over time and then how we might compare the Greek world to some of the most successful of the early modern societies of Europe. Okay, so that's, that's where we're headed. Um, change over time, more people, many, many more people. So, uh, oops, uh, so we start here um, uh, in the very bottom of the bottom, at the end of the uh, uh, collapse of the Bronze Age, with maybe three to 400,000 people um, uh, in the Greek world total. Um, by the time of uh, Homer, uh, we're up around uh, another uh, population has perhaps doubled. Um, uh, by the time we're at the age of Aristotle, we've got about eight, eight to eight and a half million people in the extended Greek world um, and uh, around three million people um, in the core Greek world. So this is really a remarkable and sustained uh, growth over time uh, for a pre-modern society. Um, not only were there many more Greeks, um, uh, they were living better. Uh, here's one important proxy uh, for living better, uh, the kind of houses that they were living in. So once again, we imagine we're here in the time of Homer, and people are living in pretty media, you know, tiny, really, um, uh, uh, small, poorly built um, uh, houses. By the time of Aristotle, um, most Greeks um, are living in really large houses. If we uh, include a second uh, story um, as we restore these, we know most Greek houses only from the floor plan, um, but we know that most Greek houses or larger Greek houses had a second story. Um, these houses uh, were as big as modern suburban American houses. Um, um, uh, and uh, when we look at the um, uh, distribution of these, uh, it's not that these are just a few mansions that people are living in. This is the median size of the, of the houses, and the very biggest ones and the, smaller, the, the smallest ones, um, uh, it's not that uh, big a distribution. Yeah. Uh, so most Greeks are living in surprisingly um, uh, uh, large houses. Um, uh, increased minting um, over time. So here's another uh, one of these maps. 
maps um, generated off of our website, uh, and it shows you the spread of silver uh, minting of silver coins over time. So the uh, dark red um, uh, are places that had started minting already in the sixth century BC. Um, lighter red in the fifth century, and orange um, uh, in the fourth century BC. So you can actually track um, the uh, practice of minting um, uh, over space. Um, and then we can also track the amount of coinage that's actually being produced, at least roughly, um, based on uh, the evidence from uh, these coin hordes, uh, that is, uh, uh, sort of pock, um, uh, pots of money um, that were uh, buried often in the floor of somebody's house and then not recovered, but ultimately recovered by uh, archaeologists and not recovered by the person who put them down. So uh, if, we, if we look at this as a rough uh, proxy for the amount of money out there um, available in the Greek world, uh, once again, we can see a remarkable rise both um, in the uh, number of uh, total um, uh, uh, hordes and uh, uh, in the uh, number of total coins. So you know, yellow is the number of uh, hordes and blue is the number of total uh, coins. Um, and coin hordes are getting bigger over time, right? So not only more um, uh, sort of pots of money, um, uh, but the pots of money are getting larger um, uh, over time, both uh, in the median um, and in the average size. Uh, if we look at investment in civic ar uh, architecture, um, so uh, Greek cities, um, by the time of Aristotle, um, just about every good-sized Greek city had a great big city wall around it. That was not true in the time of uh, Homer. So we could use this once again as proxy for growth over time. These cities have enough wealth that they can afford to build things like this. Um, so uh, your pot of uh, money has rather less chance um, of going to somebody else's uh, pocket than, uh, uh, than staying uh, in your own. Everything that we study, um, when we uh, try to find these proxies for growth, um, uh, is multiplying. So we can, everything we look at, whether it's floor plan or total household goods, um, number of names of people that are known, um, uh, everything um, is multiplying. The point is, is that there is no doubt that there is substantial growth, not only in number of people, but also in how well they're living um, uh, over time. Enough growth to uh, require an explanation. How high did the Greek world get? Well, pretty high. Um, uh, roughly, if we look at um, density of population, one of the standard proxies, once again, for um, uh, economic level of achievement used by uh, historians who study uh, pre-modern uh, economies, um, uh, very similar to uh, this density of uh, people per square kilometer, very similar to uh, 16th century Holland or 17th century uh, England. These are going to be the two comparisons we're going to use. Um, these are the two highest performing um, of early modern European societies, uh, much higher performing than, um, say, France or Italy or other places in the 17th uh, century. So um, uh, urbanization level, uh, the Greek world was startlingly urbanized. Um, so this is looking at the um, percentage of the total population living in towns above 5,000. Once again, you're thinking, urbanized? I mean, the town of 5,000 is a village, um, but not in the pre-modern period. This is the standard number that pre-modern demographers use for urbanization, and we can study uh, the Greek world um, and compare it to various other uh, early modern uh, examples of urbanization, and what we see is uh, the Greek world is roughly um, urbanized at the level um, of England in about, 19, about 1800, um, which is so once again, quite startling. It's roughly, uh, it's, it's less than Holland in the 17th century, which is the most densely urbanized part of Europe um, uh, until uh, the 18th century. Much more densely uh, uh, urbanized than, say, uh, Rome at its height, um, or France right before uh, the revolution, um, or um, England at the time of the so-called glorious revolution. 
not only were the Greeks um, uh, living in more urbanized, uh, more urbanized life, more, more of them living in towns of uh, uh, considerable size, but they were living longer. Um, uh, so this is uh, looking at um, the evidence of skeletal, uh, skeletons, human skeletons. And we're looking at two um, uh, different ways to study it. The so-called angel data was by an early scholar who studied thousands uh, of skeletons and came up with various uh, uh, approximations of the age at death of the individual um, whose skeleton it was. And then a lot of this uh, evidence was restudied in the 1990s using somewhat different uh, uh, methods. Uh, we can look at men and we can look at women. The point is that when we start at this early Iron Age bottom, um, close to the time of Homer, and then we look at the end of the classical period, about the time of Aristotle, um, uh, uh, people are, are living longer. So at the time of Homer, there were basically no towns uh, in which uh, uh, 5,000 and above. So basically no urbanization. By the time uh, we're at the time of Aristotle, we have that level of urbanization, about one in three Greeks living in these larger towns. What's weird about this? Towns, at least in the early modern period, are death traps. Um, you move to an urban area, you are much likely, more likely to contract disease, um, and you're much more likely um, to have bad sanitation. So the Greek world was becoming more urbanized and more healthy um, uh, over time. Uh, we can look at the wages um, of laborers. So here is some work by uh, my colleague uh, Walter Scheidel, um, who is looking at um, uh, the uh, comparison of Athens. We have two uh, readings for Athens in the 4th century BC and in the 5th century BC, and then um, comparing it uh, to the wages of unskilled laborers um, uh, throughout uh, much of the rest of the uh, medieval um, and ancient period. Uh, and what Scheidel found um, is that there's a kind of a pre-modern or an ancient medieval normal, um, uh, and it's pretty near subsistence. Um, these, this is all near subsistence uh, uh, wages. You're not getting very far above that basic subsistence level. Um, uh, there are a few other uh, outliers, like uh, Babylon in the 6th century, but Athens in the 4th century BC um, is a shocking outlier. Um, the wages, what people are being paid for unskilled labor is much higher um, than it should be. Once again, here we're moving from the 18th century BC, the time of Hammurabi, um, up to the 18th century of our era, the time of Kant. Um, uh, uh, and so you can see that it's not until well into the uh, early modern period that you begin to get a bunch of people getting relatively high wages. Um, Athens uh, is an outlier. We need some uh, explanation for this. Um, uh, the outlier um, uh, is once again roughly similar um, to Holland um, in the 16th to 18th century. So once again, to the most advanced um, of the European uh, early modern economies. Uh, furthermore, um, uh, inequality in Athens, and once again, Athens is the only one of the Greek city-states that we can do this kind of measurement. We only have wage information or inequality metrics for Athens, uh, so you have to extrapolate um, to the rest of the Greek world. But if we look at, the, uh, at inequality in Athens, we can do sort of standard um, Gini coefficients. Those of, you, those of you who like to do economic uh, history uh, know that the Gini coefficient is a standard coefficient coefficient of inequality, and you just have to believe me that this is a fairly low uh, coefficient of, uh, of inequality. Um, this is modeling Athens in two different ways, as it were. The optimistic uh, model, it just sort of does certain different assumptions about um, uh, how many people at different uh, consumption levels, and the more pessimistic one, I think the optimistic one is much more likely to be accurate. Um, uh, we can then uh, ask, how does Athens fare against other um, uh, pre-modern societies? The Gini coefficient turns out to be not a very good uh, uh, way to measure pre-modern societies, because uh, pre-modern societies clump too close um, uh, for sort of somewhat technical reasons um, that I could go into in the Q&A. A better uh, way to measure uh, is the so-called inequality extraction ratio. That uh, basically means that if you imagine Imagine there's some people at the top of society, the really uh, rich people up here, 
um, their goal is to get everything for themselves. Um, uh, everything themselves short of uh, what would cause everyone else to starve to death. They don't want everyone else to starve to death because then there's nobody who will work for you. Um, so your goal, if you're at the top, um, is to get everything except what everybody else needs to, um, to ba barely survive. And this is a measure of how successful the, the people at the top are. The higher the number, the more inequality, the more successful the people at the top are at getting all the goods for themselves. As you can see, in Athens, they're not very successful. Um, uh, the people at the top are having to leave a lot of uh, the goods for people in the middle. Um, uh, so Athens is uh, close in this case to um, England in about 1688 uh, and looks quite different from uh, these other examples of early modern societies. So we can sum up these comparisons between early modern England uh, and Holland, uh, looking at, uh, you know, in each case, the idea is these numbers um, are uh, actually surprisingly uh, similar. The point is, is that uh, it looks as if um, uh, the Greek world was in some ways rather like these extremely high-performing, by early modern standards, um, uh, uh, societies. So uh, uh, the idea is, is Athens sort of like Amsterdam? Um, or is this guy kind of like this guy? Um, uh, so those of you who like uh, the um, uh, Dutch grandmasters know that this, is, uh, the, in, in the, the, this period um, in Dutch history was also a period of fantastic cultural efflorescence as well as um, economic growth. Okay, so um, if you believe me um, that the Greek world saw a remarkable rise, um, got to a, by, by pre-modern standards, a remarkably high level of economic development, then I need to explain something. Um, uh, and so here's the hypothesis relatively fairer rules, that is, more equal and open access to institutions, right, to law, um, to rights, like property rights, uh, and so on, uh, along with increasingly fierce competition between individuals and between states um, in a market-like ecology um, of states, uh, an ecology of small city-states, many small city-states, incentivized, that gave people reason um, to invest um, uh, in capital, um, both in human capital, that is, in themselves, in their own education, students in the room, that's what you're doing, or that's what someone is doing on your behalf. They're investing in your human capital. They're investing in your future. And the rest of you are here because somebody invested in you, and you invested in yourselves. Okay, so uh, investment in human capital, um, uh, investment in social capital, um, people uh, investing in ways in which they can learn to trust one another um, uh, and uh, uh, work uh, more cooperatively together and uh, investments in, uh, in, in financial capital and the kind of things we ordinarily think about when we talk about um, uh, capital investment. Um, so uh, these, uh, uh, these, these, these um, uh, investments were rewarded, um, uh, or these, uh, rather these uh, 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 fair rules um, uh, and uh, competition uh, not only yield investments, um, uh, but also rewarded innovation um, uh, uh, by individuals and states while lowering the costs of doing business, um, the costs of, of, of transacting, the costs of exchanges. So that's basically the, the, the core explanation. People had reasons to invest in themselves as well as um, uh, in social and financial capital. They had reasons to innovate. Um, uh, and uh, the costs of doing business uh, uh, were relatively low. So here's the argument, the explanatory argument in a slide. Um, uh, uh, there buy the book, <laughs> uh, my publisher would want to tell you. Um, uh, it's uh, perhaps uh, 
uh, a little bit more complicated than that, but you have to have a slide that explains everything. Um, uh, so uh, here it is. So if we imagine we start out here in a world of nature, um, that is uh, a world that has uh, certain geography, certain resources, and certain climate. Uh, and then uh, imagine we have like a crisis, um, uh, a, a really severe collapse at the end of the Bronze Age, um, uh, a collapse that's going to lead to this very low level of the time of Homer and so on. Um, uh, and then we uh, then assume that humans have a basic capacity to cooperate. Um, uh, under these conditions, in the Greek world, um, at least some city-states uh, began developing more fair rules, at least fair rules for citizens. Now, this isn't fair for everybody. It's not fair for women. It's not fair for slaves. This is not a world that you or I would want to live in, believe me. Um, uh, but relatively speaking, compared to the alternatives, um, a lot of people, uh, a lot of adult males were getting a fairer deal. It's not a world of monarchy. Um, and furthermore, uh, a lot of these city-states were emerging, um, and they were highly competitive uh, with one another, and yet they shared a common background. They shared a language. They shared basic uh, conditions of uh, religion, meaning that exchange was relatively easy among these, uh, among these places. Uh, okay, so um, places that uh, uh, chose to do more fair rules saw that um, there was higher uh, capital investment. Why? Um, because uh, if the rules are relatively fair, if I am relatively protected uh, from having my efforts um, simply uh, uh, exploited um, by someone else, then it makes sense for me to invest in myself. So imagine um, uh, uh, if uh, uh, you had to, say, uh, do something really hard for like four years of your life, like go to college. Um, uh, and uh, uh, you were really going to work hard. Um, uh, uh, and at the end of that, you were going to get a, you were going to, you were going to know a lot of things. You were going to have some good training and so on. Um, and that you were pretty sure um, that at the end of four years, uh, what was going to happen um, is some powerful person was going to say, thank you. Um, uh, what I need is a highly trained slave. Um, uh, I will now give you back enough um, so you won't starve to death, um, but everything else that comes from your uh, investment in yourself is now mine. Um, so work your way back. You're sure that's going to happen. At the beginning of that four years, you want to do that four years of hard work? Or you want to just kind of hang back and just do whatever, maybe work on dad's farm, I don't know. Um, uh, and so that's the basic point. Um, you're going to invest if you're going to get some part of the investment back, that you don't have to worry too much about it being taken from you. That's why fair rules matter. And meanwhile, competition. Um, uh, if you don't innovate, um, the neighbors next door um, are going to have a big advantage over you. And that means they may just come and take you over. Um, and you may not want that. So innovation is getting driven up, um, uh, both in terms of technology and in terms of institutions. Um, uh, and uh, capital investment plus innovation leads to specialization. People choose to um, invest in themselves, invest in what they're good at. Communities choose to do what they can do well. So maybe it's growing grain, or maybe it's growing uh, olives or um, uh, grapes for wine. Um, uh, we get high exchange, because transaction costs are relatively low. Uh, we get a lot of uh, learning and emulation across the whole ecology because successful communities look over their shoulders and say, wow, we'd better do, uh, or the less successful ones, look, we'd better do what the more successful communities are going to do. Once again, competition. Um, uh, we get people becoming ever more mobile um, because people are developing skills that they can take around the Greek world. Um, uh, and so these ideas and these techniques um, uh, and these institutions are being spread by people um, who are able to uh, uh, move around uh, and we get states capable of mobilizing ever more people um, uh, for uh, collective purposes. And so the outcome then um, is efflorescence, uh, is economic growth. Um, creative sort of destruction, growth in the stock of knowledge, um, and the development of high culture. So if this is right, um, we should be able to make some predictions, and the predictions should turn out to come out. Um, so uh, the prediction would be that institutions featuring fair rules and offering a competitive advantage should prove adaptive. They should be being 
borrowed by other places. They should be um, uh, adopted uh, across the ecology of uh, city-states. Um, and this ultimately should help us explain a lot of features of uh, Greek civilization. Um, so here are specific kind of predictions. One, there would be a refinement of fairness rules. There would be innovation um, as uh, rules would become uh, more fair. Um, and there would be a convergence um, of uh, city-states upon the most adaptive of these. So we would see people moving, states moving towards uh, the successful ones. Places that don't do it, don't converge, uh, ought to fail. Um, we should see the um, successful Greek innovations moving outside of the Greek world. The Greeks don't just live in a bubble. There are many people around them should um, begin to see uh, that there are uh, advan advantages to adopting some parts of Greek culture. Um, and we should see ever more specialization um, and ever more mobile uh, mobility among specialists. I don't have time tonight to do very much of this. We'll just look at one of these refinements um, and uh, ongoing innovations under competitive pressure, and that is the growth of uh, democracy. Okay, so that's one example of uh, a development uh, of the more fair rules, at least for citizens, uh, a, a, a fairer uh, playing, uh, uh, playing ground uh, for citizens. Um, uh, uh, over time. Um, so we get uh, frequent innovations and refinements in uh, democracy. This is using, the again, the example of Athens, which is very well documented. So lots of uh, uh, law, um, uh, legislative authority, executive boards, taxation. We get all kinds of innovations that we can track in a lot of detail. So um, it's certainly the prediction um, that we should have uh, more uh, constant innovation and that democracy should be driving performance seems to come true. Um, and yet, some institutions in Athens are quite stable because the danger of innovation is it's completely destabilizing and um, your system uh, can simply collapse. Um, so we should have some uh, successful uh, institutions um, being quite sticky. So we should have democracy being robust, um, uh, being able to survive shock. Um, is this true? Does it all actually work out? Well, yes, it does. Um, uh, so if we look at the pre-democratic era, um, we can track um, both state capacity, and I can talk in the Q&A about how I measure capacity, um, uh, and ditto democracy. We can talk about how we measure that, and population. So we look at state capacity and um, uh, and democracy is pretty low in the, in the pre-democratic era. When we jump to the democratic era, we see um, capacity really jumping up. We see uh, uh, democracy basically leading capacity. So we get democracy a little before um, uh, the jump up in uh, capacity, suggesting that it is democracy that's driving capacity and not the other way around. Uh, and then um, uh, after the uh, Macedonians take over the Greek world and end uh, 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 democracy, we see um, lower state capacity. So democracy seems to be, in fact, um, advantageous uh, for a Greek state. Um, furthermore, um, democracy is advantageous for surviving shocks. So there are times when Athens really has big crises. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, uh, major capacity drop and um, uh, uh, democracy uh, ended briefly. Um, and yet we see democracy bouncing right back up again and capacity coming right back up again as well. Many other shocks um, uh, are uh, caused, you know, a drop temporarily in capacity, and yet no change um, in the regime. Once again, robustness to shock um, is one of the features um, of democracy. Uh, so if you are a Greek um, in a non-democratic city-state, you're looking at Athens, you think, do I want to... I want to take that on? Well, maybe I don't. Um, after all, we're oligarchic, but maybe we have to. Um, and so the prediction is we should see more movement towards democracy away from oligarchy than we see moving away from democracy and toward oligarchy. And that's exactly what we get here. Um, and once again, I can come back to this, but these are different ways of looking at it. Um, transitions to democracy from oligarchy um, uh, or uh, uh, from oligarchy, uh, from, from democracy to oligarchy. Um, basically, this is, the, this is the key thing. Um, it's not the case that, the, that oligarchy is just going away. 
way um, and that every Greek state is adopting. But over time, democ uh, oligarchy is losing ground. Over time, more states are adopting democracy and moving away from oligarchy. We can measure that in a different way, looking at some of uh, David Teagarten's uh, work in a wonderful uh, recent book. So here is uh, the black bars are uh, a democracy. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, we'll look, come to that in a moment. The white bars here are tyranny. And so we can see Greece always has tyrants, right? There are always people out in the Greek world who are um, basically uh, uh, running uh, states in a tyrannical way. But there's no particular trend to the line of tyranny. It bounces around. Um, if we look at oligarchy and democracy, oligarchy in red and democracy in blue, we see that both of them go up. Um, uh, through uh, the 5th century uh, BC, so both democracy and oligarchy increasing. The trend here, though, is that oligarchy just basically crashes um, and democracy uh, continues strong. So once again, the prediction is that over time, democracy is going to prove more robust, um, uh, more popular. Um, uh, uh, we still need to ask uh, uh, what happens to the expansion um, uh, of the uh, Greek world. The prediction is that we should see more of Greeks' neighbors taking it over, which would be seeming uh, more specialization. This is what's going to allow us to answer um, the question of the political fall. Um, and here uh, we have to look to the neighbors, people like Mausolus of Caria, this wonderful guy here, Philip of Macedon, and this sort of spectacular cast of characters, all of whom are adopting um, Greek culture uh, basically in the time of Plato or in the time of Socrates and, uh, and Plato. Um, uh, Mausolus is a, is, a, is, a, is a fascinating guy. He runs much of southwestern um, Asia Minor, ostensibly in the name of the king of Persia, but he's really pretty independent. We can see that he is adopting polis institutions. He's fostering city-state culture um, in his own kingdom. Why? Because it works. Um, uh, and he's also fostering um, Greek-like architecture. So this is his great um, uh, tomb known as the mausoleum, right? So mausolus mausoleum. Um, uh, so uh, here is Philip of Macedon and his son Alexander the Great, um, who in fact do ultimately defeat the Greeks um, uh, at the key battle of Chironia in 338. So we can ask, hey, how did that work? Um, I thought that the Greek city-states were so rich. Um, everything was going so well in just this period, just in the late 4th century BC. How did these guys, um, these Macedonians, ultimately manage to take over? Well, it's not a matter of poverty. Um, as we've seen, the Greek world reached its peak um, in the time of Aristotle, in the late uh, 4th century BC. It's not decadence. Um, that was the famous old thing, oh, the Greeks become decadent. Well, um, they managed to mobilize as many people um, for this war against Philip as they had ever mobilized in, another, in any other um, uh, intra-Greek peninsula war um, that we can measure. It's disunity? Okay. Um, but the Greeks were never unified. This is a market-like ecology of small states. Um, uh, and there is no uh, uh, reason to believe that there were um, fewer states mobilized against Philip um, and Alexander than there were against the Persians um, in the successful Greek wars of the fifth century. Luck and genius? Yeah, sure. Philip was a lucky guy. Um, he was lucky simply to have lived as long as he did. Um, uh, he had a relatively long reign, um, died in his 40s, so relatively uh, uh, long. Um, he had a hugely competent successor. Um, they were both you know, arguably military and organizational geniuses, but Military and organizational genius is not enough. You need material to work with. So um, uh, in order to really explain why the Macedonians um, took over the Greek world when uh, the Persians in the fifth century, who had a good, big, powerful empire, failed, um, is a developing market in specialization. Highly specialized um, uh, skills um, in fields directly relevant um, to military and financial success um, are available for 
Philip and Alexander to hire. And they get it. Um, they clearly get it. Um, uh, they, in fact, do hire um, highly talented uh, uh, Greeks, um, uh, and uh, they ultimately drive innovations that make um, Macedon in some ways like a city-state. Um, so Aristotle, for example, brought to Macedon to be the tutor of Alexander. Now, is that just an accident? No, these guys are thinking ahead. They actually want to invest in um, uh, his education in very special kinds of ways. So a growing specialization and transfer of ideas and goods and services within this ecology of city-states helps to explain the fall as well as the rise, right? Specialization was how I claimed that we got the rise, but it also precipitates um, uh, the fall. Um, how does it work? Uh, well, basically, the Macedonians um, adapt uh, Greek institutions and technologies. So they start training citizen-like soldiers. Um, they use um, specialized um, infantry tactics. They develop a special navy of warships. And they're imitating, in each case, specifically developments in the most advanced of the Greek city-states, catapult technology developed um, in Syracuse. And yes, there is this thing that may be the Macedonians' own special thing, the super spear, the Sarissa. Um, uh, we don't know who developed that. It may be um, uh, Philip's own idea, and it does sort of change the situation. Um, uh, but furthermore, not only military, but also finance. You have to be able to pay for your military. So um, systems of taxation, mining technology, um, uh, minting operations, deficit financing, all of these are things that are being developed in the Greek world, and Philip is just able to take it over. So here, for example, um, uh, Aristotle, or pseudo-Aristotle, talks about Callistratus, who we know is an Athenian politician, visiting in Macedon in exile from Athens for a while, um, caused the harbor dues um, uh, of Macedon, which which were usually sold for peanuts to produce twice as much. So basically, here's an example of Philip borrowing Greek expertise um, and using it to his own purposes, um, increasing his, his wealth. So the bottom line is borrowed military innovations and financial innovations, um, plus some genius and plus some luck, um, lead to the Macedonian takeover of the Greek world. Final thought. How come um, the takeover of the Greek world uh, just didn't uh, lead to the collapse um, uh, of, uh, the, uh, of, of Greek um, uh, civilization? Um, so here's what might have happened, right? Um, the successors of Alexander were pretty tough guys. Um, uh, and they don't have any particular interest um, in, these, uh, uh, in this culture right off. And so um, why didn't this all just go away? Um, uh, when the warlords um, uh, who came after Alexander began to dominate the Greek world, the Macedonian successors, the successors to Alexander really were warlords. They had short horizons. Um, uh, they not, were, were not thinking in the long run. They um, sought plunder. Um, they wanted rents. They wanted to take uh, uh, money from other people. They're basically, um, as in this famous article by Austin, uh, they're, they're like Vikings, um, but Vikings with really high technology. Uh, uh, so the premise is, is that if the Macedonians um, uh, had um, been able to plunder and set their taxes at whatever rate they wanted, um, the whole classical ec uh, uh, economic efflorescence would have crashed, taking classical culture down with it. Right? That's the premise. And um, in that case, here's what we would have uh, is a, a Hellenistic, a post-classical um, Greek city-state might have looked something like that. What they really looked like is something like this. Um, uh, really, uh, uh, once again, examples of continuing efflorescence. Um, uh, the Hellenistic Greek world flourished economically. Polis culture flourished. Many of the Greek city-states maintained local autonomy. Um, in some ways, this period at the end of the fourth century into the third century is the high point uh, of Greek democracy. Um, why is this? Because taxes paid to these warlords, these Hellenistic kings, were negotiated rather than arbitrarily set. Once again, if the warlords had had the chance, they would have set the taxes so high that they would basically pulled all of the energy out of the system. Um, uh, but instead, uh, taxes were negotiated. 
Um, so the hypothesis is that the warlord kings were constrained to negotiate high levels of independence and low uh, taxes because the Greek city-states were very costly to attack. The costs of attack were driven up um, by various developments associated with fair rules, with federalism, which I haven't had a chance to talk about, with democracy, uh, and with investment in fortifications. So here is this lovely town of Priene. Notice great big city walls, right? Um, uh, and notice the location on a mountaintop. Um, uh, once again, remember this slide? Um, investment in fortifications, maxing out um, in just the time uh, when these warlords um, are taking over. Um, did anybody notice this sort of thing in the Greek world? Aristotle certainly did in the politics he wrote. If the city, he's talking about the best city, the city we ought to hope for, if our city is to survive and not suffer disaster or insult, the securest fortification of walls must be deemed to be the most warlike, particularly in view of the inventions that have now been made in the direction um, uh, of precision with missiles and artillery for seizures. This is a time of great military uh, uh, innovation. Um, and so this is the kind of problem that a Greek city-state uh, uh, was confronting. They have to have walls that are capable of dealing with that. But, continues Aristotle, potential aggressors do not even start, uh, do not even start attempting to attack those who are well prepared, who have the right kind of walls, who have invested in the right kind of uh, technology. Don't believe me? Um, uh, this is like sort of a cruel threat. Um, uh, ha ha, what if we had to work this through? Um, we're not gonna work this through. Um, it's just another so, um, sort of suggestion that we can use some of the techniques of social science to better understand the Greek world. This is just a, actually quite a simple game um, to explain why a king here, uh, who has to choose um, whether to threaten or negotiate with a city here, um, once he's taken into account of how the city might defend itself and what his likelihood of attacking it is going to be, is going to end up down here, um, uh, uh, negotiating um, rather than um, uh, uh, trying to attack. He's going to do this not because he's a nice guy, not because he loves Greek culture, maybe he'll learn to love Greek culture eventually, but because his payoffs, um, and this is a payoff matrix, um, uh, are actually best um, uh, if he negotiates. Uh, and therefore, um, for perfectly rational reasons, uh, the uh, Kings did, in fact, negotiate. They negotiated reasonable rents, um, and the Greek city-state world um, was able to continue on um, uh, a path, at least for some time, of efflorescence, long enough um, for that culture um, to be collected, to be canonized, um, uh, to be um, put into the Library of Alexandria, to be put into a form in which it could be taken over by the Romans, and then finally, um, uh, eventually, by us. So, in conclusion, Byron was right um, in that quote I gave you at the beginning. Um, and I'd like to say, now we know why. Um, distinctive political choices about fair rules um, and about innovation made under uh, these emerging conditions of fair rules and competition um, created institutions especially democracy and federalism, that drove increased specialization, mobility and exchange, and led to economic growth. The fall can be explained by a similar development, that is, the creation of mobile specialists um, uh, who had, in fact, invested um, in their own uh, capacities. Um, uh, uh, mobile specialists are increasingly available for hire by so-called opportunists, by people at the um, edges of the Greek world looking to uh, maximize their own revenue, leading eventually to the Macedonian takeover of Greece. Persistence uh, and immortality, those same choices and institutions, um, uh, however, helped preserve the Greek culture during the early Hellenistic period, um, the same kind of investments after uh, the period of political fall. So economic fall does not coincide with political fall. Low taxes and continued polis independence that arose from the that game, um, that sort of formal game that I put up, uh, allowed continued flourishing, preserved the conditions necessary for the consolidation of the classical Greek culture, and so therefore we can be its heritors. That's what made 
Greek culture available to us. And that's it. Thank you very much.